Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 127 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing two recent science fiction films, Disney's Big Hero 6 and Christopher Nolan's Interstellar, and picking our favorite. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got our producer, John Joseph Adams. He's the editor of Lightspeed and Nightmare Magazines, and also the series editor of Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy. He's also edited many anthologies, including the recent books The End Is Now, Dead Man's Hand, and Help Fund My Robot Army. So, John, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be back. Then next up, we've got author and film producer Rob Bland, who you may remember from our panel on Batman in episode 66 and our panel on Guardians of the Galaxy in episode 115. He's a two-time Cine Eagle Award winner for the short films On Time and Writer's Block, and he's currently executive producing a feature-length independent film, 79 Parts, directed by Ari Taub. Rob is also a graduate of the Odyssey Writers Workshop, and is currently working on a fantasy novel titled Divinity Bind. So, Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Great to be here. And also joining us today is Carrie Vaughn, who you may remember from our feature interview all the way back in Episode 9. She's the author of the New York Times bestselling Kitty Norville series about a werewolf who hosts a radio call-in show for supernatural creatures. Book 13, Low Midnight, will be out this month. Other recent work includes the novel Dreams of the Golden Age, and short story appearances in Lightspeed Magazine, as well as in the anthologies Rogues and Dangerous Women, edited by George R.R. R. Martin and Gardner Dozois. So, Carrie, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Okay, and so we're gonna, first we're going to talk about Big Hero 6. So, John, why don't you start us off and just tell us, what did you know about this movie going into it, and what sort of expectations did you have? I didn't know much about it going into it. Um, ex- I mean, the main thing that I knew about it was that my friend Andy Romain uh, worked on it as an animator. He uh, he previously worked on um, uh, How to Train Your Dragon. And uh, so, you know, I, I, I was looking forward to it for that reason, but I didn't really know much about it otherwise. I, I knew it was a Marvel property, but it was something I wasn't familiar with. Uh, I believe it's actually based on a like a, a Japanese uh, sort of uh, manga style Marvel comic that isn't even available here. I, I, I actually looked it up on Amazon to see if I could find like the like a graphic novel of the of the actual source material. And I, I, I seem to be having some trouble. I, I, I saw some um, individual issues that were being sold like third party for a lot of money, but I didn't see, like, just a graphic novel. Um, there were plenty of novelizations and stuff like that, but I couldn't really find the source material, so... Um, but anyway, you know, I mean, yeah, look, going going into it, I, I had very... Like, I, be, I basically had zero expectations. I mean, I, I saw the trailer, I thought it looked fun, um... But uh, I couldn't. I couldn't really said one way or another what I... Uh, that I that I expected it to be amazing or anything, but uh, yeah, once I, once I did see it, I actually did uh, think it was amazing, so... Mm-hmm. Well, how about Rob? I know you read comic books. Did you? Uh, what did you think about this this upcoming Big Hero Six movie? Yeah, actually, I wasn't familiar with the Big Hero Six, uh, you know, comic books. So I, I was not, you know, I had no expectations, uh, you know. So I had seen the I had seen the trailer. Uh, I knew it was a Marvel property, um, and uh, the trailer hooked me instantly. So uh, I was. I was excited to see it. I can't say that I had any real set expectations, uh, and I ended up loving it. So, 
And what was it about the trailer that hooked you? Um, just the, just the uh, humor with um, Baymax uh, chasing after the ball. You know, you <laughs> lean over and just kick it. You know, and I was just like, um, I don't know. I was. It was the very um, humorous shape of the of of the robot. You know, I was like, oh, that that seems very different. I really want to check that out. So, mm-hmm. uh, how about Carrie? What sort of expectations did you have? Um, well, like the others, I didn't know very much about it going into it. Just uh, what I saw from the trailer, and I have to be honest, I I was not hooked by the trailer. I think they picked some of the most slapsticky bits from the movie to put in the trailer, um, and and it did seem slapsticky to me. I I hadn't originally planned on going to see it at all. Um, until it started getting such good buzz and everybody said such great things about it. And it's superheroes, which is part of my thing and what I write about and what I do. So I always like to, to see what's going on um, and, and always looking for something just a little bit different on superheroes. So I didn't have a whole lot of expectations. I also didn't realize until I went to see it that it was Disney um, because it did have such kind of an anime um, style to it. And I knew the source material was uh, anime inspired as well. Um, anime manga inspired. So, um, I was kind of surprised and, and, and pleased to learn that it, it is Disney animation and that Pixar's John Lasseter, um, was the executive producer. So it's got a good pedigree. Um, but, but yeah, I didn't really know what to expect from it either, just to, that it was getting good, good feedback from people I trusted. Yeah, I, I have to say, I also was, was underwhelmed by the trailer, which, like you say, just seemed sort of, it kind of just made it seem like a kid's movie to me. And I actually, I ended up liking it more than I thought from the, um, from the trailer. But, um, I had also read an article about it in Wired Magazine where it had talked about, you know, Pixar and Disney and how this was a, this manga comic. I actually did a little bit of research on the comic and it sounds like there's essentially no connection between the graphic novel and this movie. Uh, you know, the, the, the graphic novel, like, hero works for some secret government agency and he built Baymax as this battle robot and it turns into a, a dragon robot, like a transformer thing. Oh. And, oh, uh, very different. So, <laughs> so well, fundamentally that different, ex- my God. That, ex- that explains why I can't find the graphic novel. <laughs> 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 because they probably don't, they want to suppress it. It's like, oh, people are going to think, what the hell is this? And just to, and, and two other things is that Fred in the comic can, like, astrally project a dragon monster to appear. Mm. and Go-Go, like, shoots, like, turns into, like, a blast of flame or something like that when she screams her name. So, uh, yeah, they really, uh, you oh, know, <laughs> they really uh, deviated from the source material on this one. Well, I, I have to say, actually, just learning that, I, I'm I'm really pleased with the changes that they made. I mean, like, you know, regardless of, like, I, I don't have any fealty to the original source material, as I said, so uh, all I'm basing that on is just what you said, but, um, I, I just love all the changes that they made from that. Like, I, I, I mean, obviously, um, you know, it sounds like maybe the character, were the characters older in the, in the original? Cause it's like, I mean, that, I don't know that that would have made all that much sense, uh, with the kids that we see in the movie. Uh, I, I think Hero is a boy genius in the manga. Okay. I don't know how old the other characters are. I mean, all the, uh, the, the women in the manga also look, uh, like much more like stereotypical like male sex fantasy superheroes, uh-huh. you know, or super you know, female superheroes. Yeah. Um. So and also, uh, you know, like Baymax isn't a medical robot in any way. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> there was one other. Oh, and and Hero doesn't have a brother. Oh, right? okay. So oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of like everything you think. Yeah. Oh, but 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 one thing I did want to say to give the trailer credit is that it didn't spoil the entire movie. <laughs> 
True. Um, and apparently the um, the Japanese version of the trailer, I think, did spoil the entire movie. Like, it, it, mm. it gave away that Tadashi was going to... Oh, shoot, I forgot to give a spoiler warning. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, spoiler warning, by the way. <laughs> um, the, the, the Japanese version of the trailer... And that goes for Interstellar, too. Um, the, um, the Japanese version of the trailer gave away that Tadashi was going to die in the trailer. Uh, and stuff oh like God. that just drives me insane. That actually does seem like the sort of thing that we would have seen in the trailer, so I'm glad they didn't do it. Um, cause yeah, I, I think a lot of movies actually do, uh, have stuff like that in trailers because, like, it, cause it does happen so early on in the movie that it, you, you, you could conceivably argue that it isn't really a spoiler. But yeah, I think it's much more effective when you can just watch the movie and not realize that's gonna happen. Because that is, that was such an emotional, uh, part of the movie and, and was so well done that I, I think it would have lo- definitely lost something if we just knew it was coming right from the start. Um, so yeah, I'm glad that they didn't do that. Although I, I, I will say I agree with you that the, that the trailer, um, that we did see didn't actually really communicate the heart that the movie has. Cause that's, I think that's what made, makes it so amazing in my eyes is that there, there's like it, the emotional stuff in the movie is so well done. And it just like, it just, it's like, it's just like overflowing with heart and, uh, it's like heart and fun. It's like an equal measure. That's like what the movie is like made of. And, um, so, I mean, that's what made it work so well for me, and, and so I'm uh, I'm glad that they didn't spoil all that in the trailer, but um, on the other hand, it would have been nice if they gave a little bit of a hint of that, so maybe uh, more people would have uh, run out to go see it. Oh, that's interesting. I only saw one trailer for um, for that movie. Because I think the trailer that I saw was the teaser trailer. Not Did they do a full trailer for... The one I saw, it's, it's, it's the scene basically where Hero's telling that he's giving his report to the cop who doesn't believe him. Mm-hmm. And it's basically that, and then like a couple like slapstick things with Baymax, and that's the oh. whole trailer. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, that's that's the one that I saw. There was one with him trying to fit into his armor and popping out of it. That yeah. the same kind of physical humor, um, right? That I think right. makes up the funny half of the movie. <laughs> right. Um, right. It's it's interesting to me. One of the things I noticed about the movie that that I haven't decided how I feel about it, but the movie felt very young to me and all of those changes seem geared towards making it young. The characters are all students. Uh, they're, they're all young students. They're kind of recognizably um, that, that late teenage type, but the, but the movie seemed even younger than that, uh, like middle grade instead of a young mm-hmm. adult book. And it, because it, it sounds like, you know, in the graphic novel, it's a much older audience mm-hmm. and much older characters, much older kind of situations. And, and it surprised me, I think, because I've kind of gotten used to animated movies that do work on multiple levels and are geared towards older audiences. Um, something like The Incredibles, uh, is, is right. definitely, you know, adults are the main characters. There's multiple levels of humor there. Um, you know, uh, Edna Mole is, is, a you know, a long extended joke that your, you know, your average 10 year old is not going to get. Um, but, you know, most of us just love that. Uh, and, and Big Hero 6 didn't really have anything like that in there, uh, which, you know, left me a little, it, uh, I'm not going to say confused. It was just something I noticed because I, you know, I don't have too many kids in my life. So I haven't been going to see, uh, really kid oriented animated movies. And, and this one definitely was. Uh, I think targeted. I, I felt like the the target age was about twelve. Yeah, I felt like even though, uh, it, it, yeah, I agree. Like it obviously was targeted at that age. Uh, I felt like it did a really good job of of having like an all ages feel to it. Like even though it wasn't, it didn't maybe didn't have some of the stuff that uh, specifically aimed at adults, like you say. But um, I I felt like like. Yeah, I mean, there was nothing in the movie that, like, when I was watching it that I felt like, oh, like, that's kind of been, that's, that's like kind of a dumbed down thing that they put in there for kids. It's like everything just, like, 
felt like it worked together so well to me that um like i i didn't really have any complaints and i mean i, I and i have watched a lot of these um sort of uh you know animated features that um are obviously much more uh, designed for kids and, and, you know, if adults like them, fine, but they're like, who cares if they don't, you know? Um, whereas this one really felt like it, it, it just, it just like hit every, every box on, you know, checked every box and, and just worked for me like on basically every level. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not a criticism or a complaint to say that it's young. It's just something that I noticed that it seemed a much more conscious of its age target than a lot of animated movies do. Oh, I was going to say too that um, you know what, what Dave was saying. Uh, some of the changes between the the source material and the movie. One of the other things I really uh, I really like that they chose to do in the movie was that they kept it much more science focused. So it's like that's like a science fiction movie. You know, I mean, like some of I mean some of the science like is pretty ridiculous because it's like superhero stuff. But I mean, it's all science fiction. Whereas. Um, like, you know, what Dave was describing, like, the astral projecting as one of the powers and stuff. It's like, okay, well, that's getting more into, like, you know, sort of wishy-washy fantasy stuff. Um, and it's like, I mean, I like fantasy, but, like, I, I really appreciated that, you know, given that it's focused around a robot that they actually made, um, they tried to make all of the, the powers just specifically science-focused. Well, that was my favorite thing about the movie is that it, it, the characters were scientists. They wanted to be scientists. Science was mm -hmm. a good thing. They solved right. their problems with science. And, you know, for such a long time now, we've had Hollywood movies that where science is the bad guy, like not just scientists doing evil things, but science itself being the thing that will destroy us all. Uh, and, and this was not that at all. And, and not to jump ahead of ourselves, but I, I got the same feeling from Interstellar. So it was just such a relief to have, you know, a movie where the kids want to do science and it's a good thing and they're not nerds. Uh, you know, <clears throat> they're not stereotypical. Um, and that was great. Yeah, that, that was very refreshing. Plus, I think the one element that really does appeal to the adult in that movie is just how incredibly kind and warm and huggable this healthcare <laughs> assistant is. You know, I mean, that's the way I want to experience, um, the healthcare system, you know, and, and so that, that sort of, that sort of, um, very approachable and likable way of of um you know looking at a a healthcare assistant uh i i think sort of tapped into the adult angst that we have about the healthcare system i mean i'm mm -hmm. i'm kind of i'm kind of reaching i feel but <laughs> but i mean that's the way i responded you know that's the way i as an audience member responded to to uh, baymax hmm. and i mean also i also feel like as an adult i appreciated the diversity in this movie mm -hmm. Um, oh, totally. That uh, even just from the first shot where there's the, it looks like the Golden Gate Bridge, but it has sort of a, right. a Japanese architectural styling to it. I, I was just blown away by that. And then uh, I was just continually delighted by how diverse the characters were. And mm -hmm. um, I, I really felt like this is a, like a, a movie that's going in the right direction in, in, mm -hmm. in that uh, respect. Yeah. And, oh, man, the city design was so amazing. And like, you know, just like throwing it out there, like without, you know, just tossing you right in and, and then, and then you find out the city's called like San Francisco or whatever. So it's like a combination <laughs> of San Francisco and Tokyo, obviously. And it's like, but they did such a wonderful job, like merging the looks of the cities to, to make it look that way too. And oh man, that was just so great. Um, I, and I, I don't know, again, I don't know about the source material if it had that or if it was just like set in Tokyo or something since that was a Japanese comic, but that was a really cool decision. Um, and, and it really helped with the, uh, you know, sort of, you know, focus, uh, on the diversity of the, of the movie too, I think. Um, cause it, it just made it all feel right. 
I'll just say, John, about the comic, all the characters or all the main characters are Japanese in the comic, mm-hmm. and I think it's just set in Tokyo. I'm okay. not sure about that, but I, I believe mm-hmm. all that stuff is a credit to the filmmakers. Mm-hmm. Well, stylistically as well, it's it's manga tropes with Western superhero tropes um, mm-hmm. you know, in the same story, and it was a, a an interesting blending of, of both of those styles, and I think that was reflected um, in, in just the look of the movie and, and the way the story was handled. In terms of the look, uh, does Baymax look the same in this movie versus the um, graphic novel? No, no. I mean, he's just like a Transformer in the graphic novel. Yeah. He's not inflatable or anything like that. Okay, that's interesting. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. It's kind of yeah. surprising they even, <laughs> it's like they even call it the same thing. It's like, it sounds like it's so different. But I mean, I guess it, it has enough similarities that, that they, it's easier just to, to do that and, and build on that. But um, yeah, I mean, wow, it sounds just so completely different. Uh, I'm kind of glad I couldn't find the graphic novel because I'm sure I would have been disappointed <laughs> with it now. Um, okay, so you guys mentioned this. I mean, the, the science, like you guys were saying, is one thing I really loved. And I could just imagine lots of kids applying to Carnegie Mellon after <laughs> watching this movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that leads into, like, Baymax, obviously, was was fantastic. And also the microbot. I was just blown away by the microbots. Mm-hmm. I just loved that so much. And great apparently, villain. Great villain, great use of the <laughs> nanotech. And apparently, like, they could only, do, apparently, um, Disney or Pixar or whatever now has this gigantic processing, computer processing facility consisting of 50 supercomputers or something like that. And that's what enables them to do the, the microbots. And actually, it's kind of interesting. Um, the San Francisco was procedurally generated. So, you know, it's not like people drew all those streets and buildings. They had it, it was all kind of randomized and hmm. it generated different cities. And they're like, okay, we like that one. Oh, that's um, cool. That's what? cool. That's crazy. <laughs> Holy crap. That's amazing. Um, but yeah, so so the microbots, I thought was, that was definitely one of the, my favorite parts of the movie. It's, it's just really cool to see. Yeah, and the inflatable robots, too. I guess they, the filmmaker said that they spoke to like actual robot labs and student, mm-hmm. students and stuff. And, and a, lot of the, a lot of that came out of interactions with actual robotic students. And, and it really, you could tell because it really felt very, uh, you know, very like a real lab environment to me. Yeah, you yeah. know, um, you know, men- you mentioned uh, you can imagine kids running off to 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 try to go to Carnegie Mellon after this. Uh, yeah, my my stepdaughter actually was uh, talking about building robots after that, and I was like, well, hey, you know, it's not too late to you know decide to go do that. I mean, she's only twelve, so she has lots of time to decide what she wants to do for her, her career or whatever. And uh, but the funny thing is, is that she looks exactly like Honey Lemon. It's like we when we, <laughs> went, when we went to see it, my wife was just like cracking up at Honey Lemon. She's like, oh my god, that's Grace. It's like <laughs> put a put a headband on her. It's exactly her. Um, and, uh, so just, that was kind of funny, but, um, but she doesn't want to be Honey Lemon. She wants a, she wants to be a hero, you know, so. Of course. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't blame her at all. All right. So I think it sounds like we all agree that just the, the world and the characters of this movie were terrific. Uh, I had yeah. a few more problems with the plot. Um, I had, I had problems with the plot. That was the one thing that kept me from fully embracing the movie, uh, that, not, not not the plot per se, but its predictability. It was a very rote plot. I didn't actually love the movie as much as I wanted to. I, I was in the middle of it thinking I should be loving this, and I am not. Um, you know, I was. I call it shutting off my author brain. I was not <laughs> able to shut off my author brain, and and it's because I was sitting there going, okay, this is the kind of movie that has a plot twist. What's the plot twist going to be? Oh, this is going to be the plot twist. And when you're doing that within the first twenty minutes of the movie, <laughs> you know that's that's not good. You know, you you know what's going to happen from then on. 
Right. So I, I didn't I didn't love it like I wanted to. What were your what were your plot problems that you couldn't you know uh, overcome? I, I knew who the bad guy was. Um, sure. Okay. You know, I, I knew that, that that twist was going to come. Um, you know, like I said, I don't think there's anything wrong with the plot. It was just things I had seen before. And, okay, so and, it just you know, seems sort of it just seems sort of ordinary. It seemed rote. Um, you know, uh -huh. given given what how much um, inventiveness is in the rest of the movie, the plot sure. did seem kind of rote. Although sure. I love the bad guy, just visually, the the villain was fantastic. And the villain had a, a reasonable motive, mm -hmm. you know. Yes. And yeah. Well, hold on. I, I want to get to the the villain's motive. Motive, but yeah, I, I agree with uh, Carrie about the predictability of the plot. That, um, like, if you contrast this to The Incredibles, which is a sem a fairly similar movie, but I, f I felt like The Incredibles, the plot surprised me a lot more than this than this mm -hmm. one. Um, but the villain, that was actually my biggest problem with the movie. I felt like the the plot twist was more or less arbitrary um that there was no i mean you, you sort of kind of knew it was coming because that's the structure of these stories mm -hmm. but when it was revealed to be um professor callahan i just felt like there had been no foreshadowing uh of his motives right. um mm -hmm. before that reveal it, it just felt really arbitrary to me mm -hmm. he was the person standing in that part of the plot <laughs> yeah so there right there go. yeah i think i think the only foreshadowing was his uh overt anger Towards the um, oh, what's that character's name? Cray, the, the, Alistair yeah, Cray. Exactly, it was his overt, you know, distrust and anger. That was mm -hmm. the only foreshadowing that they had done, I think. At that point. well, and and that foreshadowing was even just done as like a red herring, basically, because it was right. it was designed to make us and the characters think that Cray is exactly. the one that would have stolen the 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 tech. Right. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's like obviously, it's like well. When you first see the guy, it's like, well, it's obviously either, it's gotta be either Cray or Callahan or, uh, Tadashi. And I was like, oh god, don't make it be Tadashi. Like that, I mean, <laughs> that would have been a much bigger plot twist, but I was like, I was just, I, I was dreading that it was going to be. And I was like, no, that would ruin it. That would ruin the movie if it had been. So John, what happened to you happened to me then? Because just before the big reveal, I was like, Oh no! I, I, yeah. I hope it's not his brother. Oh no! Right? <laughs> no, that would have been terrible. That would have yes. been awful. I'm so glad yeah. that it wasn't. But I mean, yeah, no, you, told, you guys are totally right. Like Callahan, it's like it's not much of a plot twist. It's like okay, well, it's obviously you know, it's obviously one of those people that we've seen already. And uh, um, yeah, I mean, it's like it was. Uh, it would have been nice if it was sort of set up better so that we could have been you know surprised and yet it made sense. Um, but uh yeah I mean I I can't can't argue with that. It didn't it didn't really bother me per se just because like the movie was so fun and everything otherwise. Um so I forgive it for that, but um mm -hmm. that's a fair cop. Um since we're talking about some criticisms of the movie, um one minor criticism I had uh came um in a part which I actually quite like, but if I sort of stop and analyze it it kind of falls apart a little bit. So like when Baymax starts running out of uh battery power and he sort of, uh, and so like, that's all funny. And I love some of the gags, like when he tries to climb up the stairs and just face plants into the <laughs> stairs. Um, mm -hmm. and like, he's like petting the cat and he's like, hairy baby. And it's like, that's all funny. Right. But it's like, okay, well, he's drunk though. It's like they, it's like when he runs out, when he runs low on battery power, he turns drunk. And it's like, 
that's that that's what doesn't quite make sense to me. Like, why would the robot act that way? It's like, sure, like when he started slurring his words and sort of slowing down, like, that kind of makes sense because you think you think about like a like a tape player or something low on batteries. You know, for for all you kids out there, there were these things called tape players that you used to listen <laughs> to music on. Um, but anyway, you know, like when the when the batteries would run low, like you know, it sort of slow down and. Talk like this when when it plays stuff, and so you know that kind of made sense to me. But you know he just started acting drunk, and that didn't really quite work when when I sort of sort of analyze it. But I loved all the gags that resulted from it, so I couldn't really complain too much. But you know if if you force me to to criticize something, that's that's you know one thing that came that occurred to me. That's kind of a nitpick. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> no, I fully admit it's a, it's a nitpick, and I mean I wouldn't. Uh, uh, I wouldn't really mention it otherwise, except that you know we're in, you know it's like if I'm gonna if I'm forced to pick something, I, I'll pick that one. <laughs> All right, then. Uh, yeah, I, I can't really go with you on that one, John. But I mean the, <laughs> the 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 one the sort of the other nitpicky thing I have is that at the very end, um, when Hero discovers that Baymax has secreted right. his microchip in his closed mm. fist, you know how did he do that? Like once he unplugged it from his uh, him from his chest. Uh, I don't. I'm actually not sure. It just didn't seem right. like he he should have been deactivated had, at that point, or he should have become evil Baymax, or I don't know. Right. Something. He had a temporary memory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was still. It, worked, it was still it in RAM. Like a plot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought they should have established that he had a temporary memory bank. Wasn't there uh, uh early in, earlier in the movie, um, when they are switching out the chips? Wasn't there a point in time when the chip was out and he was he still had some of his personality? Wasn't there a brief moment in time? It didn't last, but wasn't there a brief moment in time? Um, I don't remember. Yeah, I don't remember that. I've, I've only seen the movie once, but mm-hmm. I could have sworn there was um, a moment where you know where you know he turns into evil Baymax, and you I, know I, he. <laughs> I think if that moment, if you want that moment to be there, then that moment is there. <laughs> Thank you, Carrie. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I can't be precise about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I I totally understand where you're coming from with that. It's like a, I I see. Yeah, I mean, it, it's 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 a, certainly a question. And I mean, I I think like Carrie says. I mean, if you if you want to, you know, you can find the justification for that working. But that scene was so well done, though. Like I was, it's like. You know, even though it's like you kind of know like that kind of thing is going to happen in this kind of movie, it's like, no, Baymax. And I, I mean, you know he's a robot, and you know he's a robot, so you're like, oh, well, you know, of course, uh, you know, Tadashi will probably, I mean, Hero will probably build him again, but it's like, well, but then I didn't, I didn't actually see the, the, the card thing coming. Like, I didn't, I didn't, and you know, so, like, whether or not it was, they, they set it up, uh, 100% correctly, uh, that's another thing. But I mean, like, I didn't see that coming at all, so I was really, I thought that was really cool, cause it's like, it's like, well, that's still essentially, that's Baymax, because he's, he's his brain on that chip, you know, it's like, so, uh, you can rebuild the body all you want, as long as you still have the Baymax chip, then, um, then that's still Baymax. So, I feel like he, you know, uh, we got to have the emotion of of the of the robot sacrificing himself, and yet he still didn't really die. So, welcome to Disney. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, well, but but you don't want Baymax to die, did you? Life would have been so no, sad. Of course, I didn't. I was heartbroken. <laughs> I, sh- I shed a tear. You know, See, but this so, is, yeah. it's a robot movie. You always rebuild the dead robot at the right. end of the robot <laughs> movie. Same thing happened in Iron Giant. Um, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. that this is the trope, and this is what I was saying about it being, oh, yes, of course this happens, because this is a happy robot movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was getting a huge Iron Giant flashbacks during yes. this movie. Uh-huh. 
Yeah. Which is a fantastic movie, by the way. There's oh, nothing, gosh. nothing, nothing wrong with Iron goodness. Giant flashbacks. Oh yeah, no. Uh, I will say about that parallel universe place, it mm-hmm. looked unbelievable. I, I just had my jaw hanging open yeah, when they yeah. went in there. The visuals were spectacular at that part. Yeah, yeah, no, that that was really beautiful in there. Yeah, for sure. Did you see it on IMAX or something? Uh, no, unfortunately, I just saw it on yeah. like a normal screen. Okay. Was this? Was there a 3D version of this one? Yeah, I saw it in 3D. Okay, mm-hmm. I I did not. I go to movies with a friend who's blind in one eye, so we tend mm-hmm. to avoid the 3D ones because they don't work mm-hmm. um, for him, which is yeah. fine because I've kind of gotten turned off on the 3D um, just in general. Yeah, me too. But I was curious if it if it if you felt that the 3D was justified. Uh, I in general, I'm not a fan of 3D. I only went to the 3D show because the time was worked out better. Uh, and I can't say I particularly even noticed it while I was watching it. Plus, it is Disney, so you know they push their own, you know, 3D technology. Mm-hmm. So, well, that's a good sign if you saw it in 3D and you didn't particularly notice it. That means that the 3D worked. Right. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I didn't actually see it in 3D either. I saw it twice in the theater, but I didn't see it in 3D either time. I saw it in um, RPX once, which is like sort of half-assed IMAX, but uh, it's as close as I can get to a good theater here where I live. R- RPX isn't so bad. I mean, yeah, the no, sound I mean, system the sound system is pretty decent. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it did, I mean, uh, going back to Callahan for a second, I mean, it, and that parallel universe, it did strike me as strange that it had never occurred to him to reconstruct the gate and try to rescue his daughter. Mm-hmm. Like, it seems like that would be the most obvious thing that he would want to do. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you would think that he would at least hold on to that hope that she would that she was still alive and he would sort of obsess over trying to, you know, at least find out, you know, find some way to access that dimension to find out if she was still alive. Well, if you want to rationalize that kind of thing away, um, I was sort of under the impression that they knew absolutely nothing about the the interdimensional space, that they weren't even sure it existed. They were just building these gates and chucking things into it without understanding what they were doing. So I felt like it was a pretty natural assumption that she was dead. She got sent in there the gate exploded where was she going to go it's like the transporter on star trek when it goes wrong it goes very very wrong um and that so that didn't bother me because i I felt like yeah that's a you know for test pilots for testing any any kind of technology like that that's a a natural assumption where would she have gone because Mm -hmm. i felt like they didn't understand which was part of callahan's complaint is that that craig didn't understand what he was doing Mm -hmm. that's true Okay, I'll buy that. Thank you, Carrie. No, oh, you're welcome. <laughs> I was going to say, though, I thought that Rob was mentioning the scene where um, Callahan is sort of expressing his distrust of Cray at the um, science fair thing. I thought he should have seemed a lot more angry there. I guess yeah. it would have been a spoiler, but just like, you know, you just make he, it seemed very impersonal. And it didn't seem I didn't get the impression at all from that, that this is the guy who I hold responsible for murdering my daughter from right. that interaction. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Yeah, that's true. That's the hand of the author on the plot there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Is anyone worried that there's an evil uh, red chip skull face uh, Baymax out there in the parallel universe somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, actually, 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 that's probably what's going to happen in the sequel. <laughs> I bet. I bet he's going to come back. <laughs> evil Baymax. 
No. Evil not evil gonna healthcare. Do that. Evil healthcare assistant. That's all too easy to imagine. <laughs> oh, I'm sure they're going to do a sequel, though. They, yeah, that seems yeah. pretty much a given. Mm. Well, did you guys all catch the scene at the end of the movie, the post-credits uh-huh. scene? Oh yes, the Easter egg. Yep. I can't. I still can't believe how many people just like haven't clued in by now that it's I a know. Marvel movie. You have to stay and watch the freaking extra scene. <laughs> you know, know. it's like I it think, just everybody I leaves. Lot, I think a lot of people know they just don't care. Oh, that how could you not care? Yeah, because there's like this whole other story going on in the the Easter eggs. I think the Marvel fans, the people who love us, that they stay because they know the people who know but don't care, they go. It's yeah, simple as that. Yeah, but I mean, like, well, I mean, maybe it's just because I live in an uncultured wasteland, but like, literally, <laughs> like, everyone in the theater left. Like, it was us, and that was it. Everyone else in the theater left. Um, it would have been both times, but we had uh, people who were sitting sort of on the side of us, and they were sort of trapped in by us. Um, and so uh, they were going to leave, but then my wife uh, convinced them to stay because she told them about the, the extra scene. But uh, I mean, like, everybody else left. So, but I mean, do you think that's going to be a like a part of the sequel, or was that just a one-off mm. gag in this movie? Oh, I have no idea. Yeah, I, I don't, don't know. know. That felt like a gag to me. I mean, it's, yeah. it's not like they can have Stanley come back as a main character in the next movie, can they? <laughs> yeah, it could yeah, be. It could be sure big. It could yeah. be Big Hero Seven, and then Stan Lee is the <laughs> da- super dad who joins their team. Yeah, yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> I, I was trying to figure out if we were supposed to recognize the costume or anything. Like, it kind of looks like it. Kind of reminded me of something, but I couldn't quite tell what. Um, but I mean, is, do you guys know? Is it, was it just a, an original superhero costume that you know his dad happened to have? You know, be you know be using or whatever. I I didn't recognize it. Okay. And my my comics guru didn't recognize it. Okay. Didn't say that he did. So yeah. Who knows? I mean, there are <laughs> so many references and so many superheroes and superhero costumes out there that that every time, like when I'm writing the Golden Age books, I try to be original and I try to come up with superhero names. And then you Google it and you find out, well, yes, there was a there was a five issue series with this obscure character in 1977 that no one's ever done anything with. But it's yeah. like it's all already been done. Right. So who knows? It could be something out of Stan Lee's idea file that he never got mm-hmm. around to doing. <laughs> that would be kind of fun. <laughs> I did really like that scene, though, where Fred turns out to be a, a Trustafarian yeah. and he has all the... Uh... The comic books and action figures and stuff. <laughs> yeah. All right, cool. So, any uh, any final thoughts on Big Hero Six before we move on to Interstellar? I I think it's if you have anybody who has kids should take their kids to see it. It's a good movie for, like you said, a lot of heart. I think you should take yourself to see it, even if you don't have kids. Um, and if <laughs> and if for some reason you feel like you need to have a kid with you, you know, you borrow someone else's kid. But I mean, you should definitely go see this movie. Uh, I, I just honestly, I loved it so much, and I, I kept thinking about it afterward. And um, you know, when the opportunity came up, like because my sister in law didn't go with us when we went to see it the first time, so it's like when she wanted to go, it's like, oh well, yes, I will obviously go again to see it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've just been thinking about it, like, so much since since I've seen it. Um, and, uh, I mean, I even like the music from it, and I don't usually listen to pop music at all, but, like, I, 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 I've I been listening to the to the main title song um, over and over, uh, largely, I think, because it just makes me think about the movie more. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I just loved it completely, so definitely go see it. 
All right, cool. So let's do Interstellar now. So, uh, so John, why don't you kick us off again and tell us, uh, you know, same thing. What, uh, what were you expecting out of Interstellar? What did you heard about it beforehand? What were your expectations going in? Right. Well, um, I'm, I'm a pretty big Christopher Nolan fan. I mean, Inception is one of my favorite movies of all time. I mean, it's probably my favorite science fiction movie. And, um, I feel like I, I, I like replay it in my head, like when I'm bored sometimes. It's just like, it's, it's a, it's like an unending loop, basically. Um, and, uh, so, I mean, I had pretty high expectations just because I'm such a huge fan of Inception. Um, and I mean, you know, he's done lots of other great movies too, but I mean, like Inception is like the big thing for me. And, um, you know, so I was very excited when I saw that he was making this movie. And when I saw the first trailer, I was pretty underwhelmed by it. Cause it's like, there was a lot of corn. There was a lot of shots of corn and it was like on earth. And I was like, come on, the movie's called interstellar. But I was like, well, I was like, well, I'm hoping that they're just saving all the cool, awesome shit from the movie. And they don't want to show it to us all in the trailer. Um, which I mean, they fair enough. They, there's tons of cool, awesome shit in the movie, but, um, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I was kind of, I was pretty underwhelmed by the trailer, and then they released a couple other trailers, and I was like, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, it's looking pretty good, looking pretty good. I tried not to get too excited, um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. So I guess I, I had probably impossibly high expectations just based on Christopher Nolan, um, which uh, may account for me maybe not loving it as much as I thought I would, but, um, but yeah, so that's where I came from. Okay, how about Carrie? What were your expectations? Well, I'm the exact opposite of John. I am not a fan of Christopher Nolan. Um, I've liked some of his stuff, but I got really, really burned on the last two Batman movies. I was not actually a fan of Inception, but that's a conversation for a different time, um, <laughs> I think. But I am such a sucker for spaceship movies and space and space exploration. Those are some of my favorite things to read about and, and watch movies about. Um but I knew I was going to get hurt. Um, I, I, I knew not to raise my expectations because um, there, there's not a good track record for, for this kind of movie. They will show me lots of pretty pictures of cool planets and starscapes and spaceships and astronauts and all the cool stuff that I love so much. And then uh, it will all fall apart in the movie. And, and it's happened over and over and over again. So I, I sort of went into the movie bracing and hoping. Um, and there are things about the movie I really loved, but it did the thing that they keep doing to me where I want a movie about space exploration, but what they do is give me some melodrama about people behaving badly and yelling at each other, and then a monster. <laughs> you know, It's not literally a monster in this movie, but spoilers, everybody. Um, but they, they do have the character who, who sort of jumps out of the closet, you know, at, towards the end and makes everything more difficult for no apparent reason. Um, you know, Event Horizon did the same thing. Sunshine did the same thing. You know, we've got this great spaceship movie about cool things happening. And then all of a sudden we throw a monster into it because it seems like to me that Hollywood doesn't trust the idea of space exploration to be interesting enough on its own. And for me, this was another movie that demonstrated that same thing. That, that for some reason they didn't trust us to just go along for the ride and for space exploration to be tense enough and interesting enough. Um, and that was my worry when I went into the movie, and those worries turned out to be pretty justified. <laughs> uh, okay, how about, well, first, before we get too much into that, how about Rob, your expectations? I mean, you're, you're, you're a big Christopher Nolan fan, I think, right? What were you expecting out of this movie? Yeah, I like Nolan a lot. Uh, I loved his movie Memento. I thought that was a very intimate movie. Um, uh, and, and a philosophical one, uh, emotional. And, um, 
I purposely avoided everything uh, involved with Interstellar so that I wouldn't get caught up with the hype. I wouldn't get caught up with fragments uh, so that I would uh, so that I would put too much of my emotions into uh, a little bit of data, so to speak. Um, so I really, really um, did not know anything about the movie. I just purposely kept myself ignorant. And uh, the movie, for me, worked uh, on a science fiction level, on an emotional level, on a philosophical level, uh, and on an intimate level. Um, and so, yeah, I'm a, um, uh, the movie worked for me. The movie worked for me. It was, it, I had to see it twice for me to completely, um, understand what I think he was trying to accomplish, uh, filmically, uh, and, uh, thematically. Um, so, um, for me, the movie worked. Okay, and then I'll say, I mean, I um, I was really underwhelmed by the trailer. Uh, I think I said on this show that it just looked like it was about dads love their kids, and which I think is fine, but uh, didn't particularly um, compel me to see the movie. I was I was sort of interested in seeing it just because it was Christopher Nolan, and I have liked his movies in the past. But what really made me want to watch it is I, I read an article in Wired about how they had done fairly sophisticated visualizations of some of the celestial objects in the movie. Um and really paid attention to the science and actually some scientific data had come out of the visualizations they did for the movie. And that really intrigued me. So I was, I was mostly interested in seeing the movie for that. And, um, right before we went, uh, you know, I saw that it was, it was something like it was 80%, 75% or something on Rotten Tomatoes. So I had fairly, uh, modest expectations going into it. And I sort of, I thought it was, I sort of imagined it was going to be the kind of movie that was sort of okay and wouldn't really appeal to most people but that i would kind of like it more just because i love science fiction stuff so much Mm -hmm. um so those were kind of my expectations going in um what uh i know carrie why don't you talk a little bit more about some of the issues you had with the movie um how about like let's let's try to stick to sort of the first third half the movie Uh, okay (laughs) um i love the visualizations um yeah it's it's a beautiful movie um yeah it's it's hard to i'm trying to divide it up and remember the first third so if we talk about before they actually launch maybe yeah um that i i felt like it was a little melodramatic i felt like the the emotion the emotional side of the story was was forced i didn't believe a lot of it um it was long uh yeah and, and for me it's kind of encapsulated in they kept reciting that Dylan Thomas poem, the very famous Dylan Thomas poem. And for me that it felt like they were trying to shoehorn in emotion that they weren't actually getting from the story. You know, you hear that poem and it's like, okay, this is how I'm supposed to be feeling. Um, because this very famous poem is telling me how I ought to be feeling in this scene. And the, the problem is, is that the poem itself is such a cliche at this point and it wasn't really the appropriate, um, poem it wasn't the appropriate tone or emotion for i think what they were trying to do you know it's it's the rage rage against the dying of the light um you know by dylan thomas and and it's it's a poem about anger uh, and futility of fighting against death and whereas i felt this story was supposed to be kind of evoking hope so that i I kept running into these tonal 
things where are you know are we explorers who are trying to save the world or are we doomed to die and and you know th those kept being in conflict and and on top of that um yeah characters just kind of behaving in in very melodramatic ways that i i that were a little tiring uh for me um so that by the time we launched it was like oh thank god we're in space now we can leave all that behind um except of course we can't leave it all behind because you know we're constantly getting reminders and and, and we're, you know it's the two stories um there's the story back on Earth and the story on the ship, which is it, it's wonderful on the one hand because it's this very classic uh, time dilation story, which is such a, you know a great science fiction trope that has been um, you know that I'm not sure we've ever really seen done that effectively in a movie, and and, and Interstellar really made a great attempt at telling that story, um, but the melodrama I think was just a little thick for me. And and I will grant that I, I think my reaction may be really idiosyncratic. I know a lot of people didn't feel the way I did about it. Well, I, I know a lot, I know a lot of people did did too. Yeah. I mean, it seems to be a very divisive movie in that respect. But I just want to say about the early stages of the movie, the one thing that really sold me on the movie was just the scene where uh, Matthew McConaughey's kid's teacher is teaching that the moon landing <laughs> was a hoax. <laughs> yeah. And I just found that so eerie. Uh, and mm -hmm. just so, I don't know, it just resonated with me so much that, uh, that kind of made that set, made the first act for me, regardless of what other issues I had with it. Yeah, that, that is the scene that made me fall into the movie. I literally fell into the movie when I, when that scene happened. Oh, I felt like I was being lectured at. Um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it seemed, it seemed I, eerily, it's, it seemed eerily familiar to me and I got angry. Mm-hmm. See, I felt like my neighbor, my stupid neighbors in the theater were being lectured at, and I like that. <laughs> there's, there's a thread of rhetoric in, in the push for space exploration that I find um, tends towards manifest destiny. You know, we need to go explore space because manifest destiny, because we should, because we're Americans, hoorah, yay, we should go out because that's the heroic thing to do. Um, and I, I don't like that thread of rhetoric um you know i think there's a lot of really good reasons to to go out and, and explore space and to, to send um you know people out into space but but manifest destiny is not one of them and so i sort of felt like that scene um was hitting me over the head with a hammer um with that thread of rhetoric and and so personally i i, I graded at it um it just it seemed a little on the nose and a little obvious and it, it wasn't um didn't come from where I'm coming from. I hear I hear you on that, and and that that aspect of the film uh, completely um, fell was ineffective uh, for me as well. Uh, there, but there were so many other elements that I liked that I was willing to forgive uh, that you know that cliche. Uh, yeah. So I mean, one of the one of the things that I really liked about the first third or so of the movie is I, I love the setting uh, of the future Earth with the sort of climate apocalypse uh, scenario that everyone's in. And, um, like, I, I really dug that. Um, but, uh, like, so one of the things that kind of bugged me for a lot of the movie, which, I mean, gets resolved, admittedly, but, like, the whole, like, thing with his kid and, and with his daughter and the ghost thing and, you know... Like, so we see, we see all that stuff happen, and then for so much of the movie, it's like, it just, it's not explained, and you're like, well, what the fuck is that? <laughs> and it's like, and it was kind of annoying me, because it's like, it's like this metaphysical bullshit in my hard science fiction movie, you know? Um, and then, you know, it kind of gets, it gets explained later, but it's like, it's, you know, it's basically magic using science. Well, I, um, and, and I think they, they could have, they could have won us over, but I think they, 
you know, by, by kind of emphasizing that emotional story, you know, kind of over and over and over, over emphasizing that emotional story, it did make it seem more metaphysical and they didn't, they didn't win me over with it either. Well, I, I, I think the thing that I, I kind of had the same reaction, John, but the, the thing, the thing I probably hated the most about the movie was Anne Hathaway's unbelievably moronic speech about how love is the one thing that we know that transcends time and space or some oh. bullshit, bullshit like that. Well, and Matt when you, Damon did a, a similar speech, you know, love can't transcend evolution or whatever that speech that he gave was, was kind of the same thing. Yeah. So it's like when you have stuff like that in the movie, it undermines your confidence that the sort of stuff you might be on the fence about is going to mm. not turn out to be moronic. You know what I mean? Right. Right. Yeah. That, 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 um, certainly didn't help me in terms of, uh, the way I ended up piecing together, you know, what was meaningful for me about the movie, uh, that actually got in the way for me. I just, I just feel like he didn't need that, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of being able to, accomplish what he was right. uh, setting out to accomplish he that just wasn't necessary that was it was uh it was a, a huge distraction exactly uh, yeah and and uh but also yeah i mean it was a huge distraction it wasn't necessary he could have been able to accomplish everything that i feel like he did accomplish without that uh ridiculous speech like sort of like Perry was saying that she always goes into these science fiction movies with high expectations, and then they're just, like, crushed, right? I mean, this is the kind of thing that crushes my hopes and dreams in science fiction movies, is you go in—I mean, because it's, it's very easy to find written science fiction that is just, you know, has a scientific worldview, but it's virtually impossible mm -hmm. to find Hollywood science fiction that has a scientific worldview. And so I think that's why this grates on me so much, is because— you know, I just want to go to a movie where everyone's, a, you know, where the scientists act like scientists and don't right. yeah, don't well, say I mean, like stupid Hollywood screenwriter moron. I mean, bullshit. Anne Hathaway's character did did say something that was incredibly refreshing. Also, at least to me, especially in a movie like this, which is when she was saying nature isn't evil. Yeah, it's frightening. You know, it can be overwhelming, but she doesn't think it's evil. And I, and I was like, oh, that's refreshing to, you know, to see in a movie, you know, so I mean. And I felt like, I felt like she said, I felt like there, there are some very good things, you know, stated in the movie as well. Tidal Wave Planet is my new favorite thing. <laughs> uh, well, wait, we're getting ahead of ourselves there, but, uh, but, so I wanted to talk about a little bit more about, uh, the first third. Um, so one, one of the other things that sort of bugged me was, uh, so, you know, um, Matthew McConaughey's character, like, you know, he, you know, he discovers, you know, the coordinates or whatever to the secret launch facility, right? And it's like, but in, you know, we know from later in the movie that he sent himself a message, whatever, right? But it's like, so, like, I didn't think they did a very good job of communicating, like, the distance. Like, where did he live and where was the secret base? But it's like, <laughs> it's just so conveniently that it happened to be within, like, uh, you know, a couple hours drive from where he lived. Like, that seemed, like, really weirdly coincidental to me. But then also, just the fact that they could have kept that base secret and, like, they're building rockets and shit. And it's like, I understand that, like, given the world economy or the state of the world the way it is, like, you have to keep it secret. Like, you can't let people know about it because, like, people would be like, why are you spending money on space? Help us feed our children. You know, which... You know, admittedly, is probably a fair argument. But, you know, um, like, I just found it really hard to believe that they could have built this entire secret facility and, like, had these spaceships that, like, interstellar spaceships that they were going to launch, like, from some secret facility on Earth. Well, the secret facility was NORAD. 
Yeah. Um, it's the gate driving into Norad, and I think they actually even had it on, on the gate, which is, you know, right, Colorado Springs. Right. It's like literally 100 that's miles true. from my house. Um, right. So, so that, <laughs> you know, it, it was really funny. It was very coincidental. And, and, um, I think it was Heinlein. It was, it was Heinlein himself who, who had the idea of, uh, launching, um, railgun type rockets off of the Rocky Mountains outside of Colorado Springs. Um, so, you know, that, that's the kind of thing I'm willing to buy. You know, mm-hmm. I, it, if I want rockets in space, I have to buy the secret base under Cheyenne Mountain. Um, which having lived, you know, in the shadow of Cheyenne Mountain for a good bit of my life, that's, that's okay with me. That was actually like, oh, it's in my backyard. That's so cool. <laughs> um, and, um, and it, you know, and it's just kind of classic science fiction. It was another case where the movie actually did dig into the roots. You know, the, the, uh, the Stargate SG-1 main base is in NORAD. You know, mm-hmm. we have a secret base right there. It's just not very secret. Mm-hmm. I guess, John, you, you might also be able to say that, you know, we find out by the end of the movie that some super advanced civilization, possibly future yeah. humans, possibly whatever, it's, it's future humans, is, is engineering all of these circumstances in order to save humanity. So right. maybe they, you know, if they went to the trouble of building a wormhole, maybe they also went mm-hmm. to the trouble of somehow getting him to live right. in that place in the first place or something. That's true. That's true. Um, actually, that reminded me, um, has anybody read the book Starplex by Robert J. Sawyer? I have well, not. No. I... no. Okay, yeah, that that book actually reminded me a lot of Interstellar, or Interstellar reminded me a lot of that book because um, that's that's sort of a similar. It's got a similar setup where uh, there's these wormholes that uh, that humanity discovers and they don't know where they came from. And you know, spoiler alert, it turns out it's it's people from the future who had created it. And it's like it's in, in the book they use it as like sort of a com- conservation of mass or something. I think like you know, it's like they're push they're basically they push stars through these uh, through these wormholes from the future in order to to get enough mass back into to the universe so that uh entropy doesn't like you know end the universe whatever um i don't know how to explain it but you know what i mean <laughs> um that that's what that's what they're doing um and uh so i just uh i thought that i thought that 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 reminded me a lot of that but um also um you know i published a story in lightspeed called the old equations by jake kerr which is obviously you know riffing on the cold equations by mm-hmm. tom oh, godwin right. but right. um in the old I equations yeah so the old equations actually this reminded me of that a lot too um, because like, so in the old equations, we have a, a, a situation with time dilation and, and, and the physics are actually sort of alternate history physics, but, um, uh, so you, you have a, a pilot who's on a test, he, he, you have a test pilot on a spaceship and he's going on this mission and he thought he was going to be gone for like a short time, but then it turns out that, you know, there's time dilation and they didn't realize it. And so, you know, he's young on the ship and he's communicating with his wife back on earth and she's getting older. And so it's like, I felt like it did a really good job of capturing that same type of emo- emotional um story that I think Christopher Nolan was shooting for in this movie. Um And he was able to get most of it. Like it worked, per- the movie worked pretty well emotionally for me, but um in order to get that emotion, uh Nolan sort of ended up with this really convoluted plot in order to make it happen. Whereas I felt like in the old equations, like it's a it's a much more simple plot, and it did what I think Nolan wanted to do. Um, and so, like you know, so so Interstellar didn't work for me as well in that regard. The, another thread that bugs me, and, and this is across all movies, it's not just Interstellar. That Interstellar is just the latest iteration of it. Is you know, we've had a number of movies now that have posited, look, we're ruining the planet, we're destroying the environment. Um, Earth is no longer habitable, so we have to leave. You know, in all of these stories, we have to leave Earth. And and it kind of blows me away because if we have the technology to move human civilization off of Earth, then we have the technology to fix Earth. 
Um, and, and it seems like an abandonment of responsibility in all of these. And it, it's, it's a personal pet peeve, but it, it just bugs me that, that no one in any of these stories sits down to think about what do we have to do to maybe fix the earth instead of, you know, building these massive rockets and traveling to different star systems. Um, you know, it seems yeah, like I mean, that's I actually think... a more difficult technology than it would be to maybe, um, you know, fix things here. And, um, and it, I think it says something about our culture that that, that is what seems like the, the better solution to a lot of people or to storytellers anyway. All right, cool. So let's move on. Uh, I want to talk about some things I actually did like about the movie. And the things that, some of the things I did like about the movie, I really, really liked. So as Carrie was just mentioning, I mean, the, the section of this movie from essentially when they launch, um, to the point where they get off the water planet and find the massive effects of the time dilation, that sequence, uh, was amazing to me. And it was just, it was worth the price of admission for me, totally. uh, just for that section of the totally. movie. Totally. It was awesome. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm with you, Dave. Like the, the parts of the movie that I, I, I liked, I loved. Like, uh, I, like right. I, I, I would say like overall, like I, I was sort of like, um, so, so on the movie. Like there was parts of it that I didn't really like, but there were parts of it that I totally loved. And so like, I'm definitely glad I went to go see it. But yeah, I mean, everything on that water planet was like, oh God, so amazing. Like that, that fucking water mountain, you know? <laughs> and it's like that I'll, I'll say about the trailer. That's one thing that I was actually pissed off that I saw in the trailer. Cause like the teaser right. didn't, the teaser didn't show anything like that. But then one of the second, one of the, you know, uh, trailers that came after that was more detailed and it actually had that, it, it showed that scene. It showed the wall of water and it had the line. That's not a mountain. It's, Oh, oh no way. Oh, that's Yeah, yeah, yeah. That bullshit. was, that was in the trailer. And I was, I was so mad that I saw it. I wish I had done what Rob had done and avoided it all <laughs> right. because that would have been so right. much better if I just had no idea what was happening in that scene. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, everything on that planet was amazing. Like, you're totally right. And like, um, and like, you know, when they, once they actually figure out what happened that, you know, they, they didn't really calculate the, the whole time dilation thing, right? So like, you know, the message that came off the planet was actually not valid because, you know, uh, she basically died shortly after landing, even though it's yeah, like, it it seemed only like, like a was... few minutes old. Yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was wild. That was great. Wild. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, yeah, I wish the movie had focused more on stuff like that, and like you know maybe you well, know just restructure the story so that we could have more of that stuff. That's exactly what I'm you know was talking about earlier on. Yeah, it's, yeah, that that kind of movie. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of, of examples of that kind of movie that I love, and and you know I came up with Contact, um, 2010. Um, you know, Apollo 13, which granted is historical and not science fiction, but it's still it's a movie focused on actually being in space, the actual science, the, the actual what would this really be like um, and just and just showing us. Um, and, and that, it turns out, is exciting and interesting enough all on its own, um, because, yeah, you notice the part of the movie that we all love the best is the part where nobody is kind of whinging about whether or not their dad loves them. Or, you know, crying about something or giving speeches about love, you know, <laughs> you don't need that to have really interesting stuff going on. But still, the, the human side of the story is very important for this for this movie. I mean, you know, you have the you have the parallel themes of reconciliation, right? The re reconciling the quantum uh, data with the relativity and the uh, character's um, deep-seated uh, need and desire, uh, uh, an emotion rooted in love, obviously. Uh, you know, he has that really strong, deep-seated desire to reconcile with his daughter. Uh, one does not happen without the other. And I think you can have both. I just think that the movie was weighted too much in one, in one direction. 
Um, I, I think they could have cut back a little bit on part of the movie. Um, some of those scenes went on too long. I felt like the movie overall was was kind of maybe too long. Um, so it, it needed a better balance. Yeah, I, my sort of my to me to me it was perfectly balanced. But we'll agree to disagree. With <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Dave. Go on. I mean, sort of my emotion. Like I said, I was uh, from the trailer. I was very skeptical of the father daughter kind of stuff in the movie, and I thought it was hokey and manipulative. But it still made me cry throughout the whole movie. Uh-huh. So, like, you know, like, at the same time, I recognize how it's manipulative and hokey. It still affected me. So, uh, yeah. and at the end of the movie, I just, like, felt like I was just, like, was completely emotionally drained. And I just, like, sat there staring at the screen and right. took a while to rouse myself. So <laughs> I'm kind of in the middle, I guess, there. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, ultimately, like, yeah, I, I'd be interested in watching it again because I did, I did have that same sort of experience where, like, I felt like it really worked pretty well emotionally because I, I did kind of feel devastated as well. But once I got through watching the movie, um, I, although I also agree with Carrie that I think it was probably a little bit too long, like maybe a half an hour too long at least. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, totally, totally agree with that, Dave. So, yeah, I mean, the, the fascinating things about Nolan films in general. Uh, which I think Carrie, you know, has alluded to is the fact that, that Nolan, I mean, Nolan tends to cinematically express emotions in a very overwrought manner, you know, um, and, uh, it might feel mechanical. It doesn't feel organic, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, for me, I have never really had that trouble with the way, um, Nolan um sort of cinematically uh evokes um uh the human side of of the story um Carrie I know I'm putting words in your in your mouth so please uh you know stop me when I, you know if you feel like I'm misrepresenting oh, you yeah. know what what you what you're saying but um uh but for me you know this is this is Chris Nolan's version of La Jetée you know that that French that crazy French uh, film from the sixties that science fiction you know that inf- that has influenced many science fiction films, which was the inspiration you know, for Twelve Monkeys. Right, exactly. That movie was the inspiration for Twelve Monkeys. In fact, Twelve Monkeys is basically a remake. Right, it's of based La on Jete. it. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and La Jetée, you know, is about what's the role. You know, I mean, it's, it's it's a movie that that's asking very serious questions. It's not being glib. You know, it's not okay. So Nolan uh, is definitely um, has over sentimentalized, if you will, uh, certain aspects of the emotional, you know, parts of the film. But there's some serious minded stuff he's asking here. There's some I mean, there's some he's asking some serious questions. I mean, I mean, what what's the what's the uh, role of the human experience in a, in a multi in a, in a higher dimensional reality? You know, why does he, when he falls into that black hole and ends up falling into that fifth dimensional construct, you know, why does he suddenly, why, why is that, that, um, time, you know, has, is, is, has expanded before him? And why is it that it's his daughter's bedroom? You know, it's, it's not, he's not being glib there. I mean, he's, he's saying the reason why you would even survive the fifth dimension. I mean, Jesus Christ, you saw how they barely, uh, uh, survived, uh, the time paradox. Um, you know, the, your emotion, or in this case, Cooper's emotion, his deep, deep desire to sort of root himself, uh, to reconcile with his daughter is what roots him to that scene, to, to his daughter's bedroom in that, in that crazy 
multi-dimensional, fifth-dimensional construct that he fell into. No, I, I understand that's exactly what was happening, and that was clear in the plot. And I think maybe that's the problem, is, is, it, is it was clear. It was obvious. Um, it was very, very obvious. Um, and But I think that that you're not putting words in my mouth. I think that, that Nolan, Nolan's films are emotionally manipulative. And in some cases, I think emotionally shallow, um, you know, by being manipulative. And, and like I said, this is idiosyncratic. This is why we have lots and lots of different kinds of movies. Um, but, you know, I, I question, is he asking those, you know, kind of deep philosophical questions or is he kind of just throwing them out there to show how smart he is? Um, which, I, no, which granted, well, I mean, is a I, fine line, you know, it, and, and right. it's, it's, well, the, the, it's our reaction as viewers that are going to determine that, not, um, you know, this is reader reaction stuff. This isn't, you know, there's no right or wrong right. answer I mean, there. I think, I yeah, think, Rob, that, I think, Rob, I think, unfortunately, I think we need to, we're running short on time, so I think we need to move on. Um, oh, okay. So I think we're going to, we'll, uh, we'll leave the conflict over Christopher Nolan's <laughs> handling of emotion yeah. to be. I uh, like The Prestige. That's my favorite Christopher <laughs> Nolan movie. So. Well, that's, that's funny because that's the one movie of his that underwhelmed me. <laughs> <laughs> that is hilarious. Okay. I love it. But yeah, I think you guys are going to have to agree to disagree on this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I did also just want to ask you guys about some of the, the other science fiction aspects. Um, so let's just, like, just something simple like the robots. Um, I thought the robots were pretty cool. I'd never seen robots quite like that before. Um, I don't know, John, what'd you think of the robots in this movie? Yeah, I thought they were really interesting. And, and I thought it was actually really funny to have, you know, just seen before this, you know, Big Hero 6, and then, which is about a robot and how different the robots are. You know, like Baymax couldn't be any more different than the robots in, in Interstellar. Um, and yeah, like you say, I, I mean, I've never seen robots depicted like this. I actually wanted to um, email Daniel Wilson and say, hey, what did you think about those robots? Because those seem like crazy uh, robots I've never seen before. And, and does that seem like it makes sense to you? But um, yeah, no, they turned out to be really cool. Cause, like, like At first, they were very weird and off-putting because like, oh, wait, it's like a weird like obelisk robot, you know, but then like, you know, they, they seem to be very functional. And, um, so yeah, I don't know, it was, seemed pretty cool. I mean, I, like I said, I don't really have any idea about, you know, if that's like really feasible, like as a good robot design, but it seemed to work pretty well in the movie. Yeah. There was a sort of Swiss army knife aspect. To them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was kind of, it was kind of cool. I, I kind of liked it. I mean, I mean, d did you feel like maybe the design of the robots were sort of influenced by 2001, kind of like the, the sort of monolith sort mm -hmm. of shape? Yeah. You know, because that's what, that's what, he, that's how I sort of. I, I heard, I heard Nolan say in an interview that he wanted them to be inspired kind of by camera equipment that, you know, like the stuff you would have on set, like the dollies and camera, um, you know, steady cams and stuff all look very functional and then he, he thought a robot should look the same way. It's like nobody cares about what this looks like. It's, designed to do a particular job yeah i was trying to i found them very fascinating and i'm the, the jury's still out on whether i like them or not i, I was reminded more <laughs> of how that you know as soon as you start putting personalities into computers it, it, i do go back to 2001 but i went back to hal the hal 9000 and 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 you know there's always you know everything that's come after that has kind of been a red herring like oh we have a an ai with personality are they going to go crazy and kill everybody at some point um, as far as the physical design, I kept trying to kind of re it, you reverse extrapolate. Is that a concept um, back to what, we're, <laughs> what to what we're doing to what's happening in robotics now? And I couldn't quite the the evolution of that wasn't clear to me because because now we look at things like um, that what the military is doing with the big dog, 
um, type robotics where you've got multiple legs and, and, you know, it's not very advanced in terms of science fiction, but they're doing some freaky cool things out there with, with like multi-legged robotics and, and robots that can do things like, you know, climb walls and, and, and carry big loads and just crazy things like that. And so I sort of felt like that was trying to extrapolate from some, some of what we're doing now, but I was missing the steps. I, I want to see the steps in between there. And that's, yeah. Well, that, that's funny because uh, I was reading a review of the movie, um, uh, I read a review a few days ago, and uh, one reviewer was like, uh, um, "The robots are kind of like iPads with legs." <laughs> well, I thought, yeah, I thought that was I thought that was funny. So. All right, cool. How about the uh, the outer space stuff, which I think is uh, a huge selling point to this movie, the both the wormhole and the black hole. Okay, well, first of all, did anyone see it in IMAX? No, no. Yeah, because I, I haven't had a chance to see it in IMAX either, so. I was just wondering, because that that must be incredible. You know? Yeah, that was that was one thing that I said when after seeing it, it's like, oh man, I, w- I would have loved to see that on IMAX. I mean, I, I would have definitely done that regardless uh, uh, of what I knew about the movie. Just knowing it was a new Christopher Nolan movie and it was set in space, I would have definitely wanted to go see it in IMAX. But alas, not. Um, but I, I just want to talk a little bit about the background of the movie because I guess this movie um, was initially developed sort of by Kip Thorne. He's a famous scientist uh, who specializes in black holes. And he and a film producer got together and they kind of sketched out a, uh, the idea for a movie involving black holes. And then Steven Spielberg was attached for a while and, um, you know, Jonathan Nolan worked on the script. And then Steven Spielberg left the project and then it looked like the movie was not going to happen because Hollywood isn't going to trust very many directors with the kind of budget you would need to do this story. Um, but then sort of in the meantime, Christopher Nolan became a big enough director that he, he became one of those directors. And so he took on this project. Um, but so I just think it's interesting that you know, the science of black holes, you know, was the was the origin point for this story, however far uh, it ended up traveling from there. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, no, that's interesting because Linda Opst and uh, Kip Thorne did uh, did write a treatment in 2005 uh, for Interstellar. And yeah, that's true. Uh, Spielberg did option that film, but then I, um, the option expired a few years ago and, and Nolan picked it up. That's Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, I think um, as far as the gen- in general, the space elements in the movie like were really, really well done, and I, and I mean, I just loved uh, you know experiencing all of it. Um, I think that Interstellar is a little bit hurt by the fact that Gravity came out a couple of years ago and um, sort of stole some of its thunder because, like, without Gravity. Like, I feel like I would have, my mind would have been blown by all of the visuals in this movie and, uh, and all of the treatment of how, you know, uh, putting people into space would be like. Like, I, I feel like without gravity, I, I just, I would have been, like, my mind would have been completely blown. Uh, but like, but, but I felt like gravity, like, did, uh, a bunch of stuff, like, better than Interstellar. So that's sort of, it's sort of, uh, hurt by comparison as well. It's like, Throughout the whole movie of Gravity, I, I was just really, really tense and I felt like the, the, you know, the tension of the characters in, in the movie and everything. And, um, I didn't really get that as much from Interstellar, um, even in the scenes where, you know, they're going for that. So, um, so there's that. Yeah. I think, I mean, I feel bad that, that, um, Nolan or like most people haven't really gotten a chance to see the movie the way Nolan really intended it to be seen because he shot over half the movie in IMAX. I mean, shot it in IMAX. So, um, you know, I just, I just, for instance, when you, when you saw the dark Knight, you know, on the regular film, and then when you saw the dark Knight, you know, on IMAX, um, they were 
two different, almost two different stories in terms of the amount of information that you received. Um, and so, I don't know. I, I, I feel like um, Interstellar is not really getting a fair shake in the sense that that the uh, the film is not being seen in the way you know he uh, intended it to be seen. I guess also, I have to correct myself, Rob. I saw this in fake IMAX, so <laughs> I, oh that's... yeah, that's painful. Yeah, that's painful. <laughs> that's painful to, to the wall. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't. It didn't detract for me um, because the stories are so completely different. Um, you know, Gravity being such a, a kind of personal, intense, focused, uh, basically a disaster movie, a disaster survival movie, uh, versus Interstellar, which really is kind of you know, literally cosmic and, and epic in scope. Um, I, I just love living in a world where we have special effects in movies that we can have two giant space movies in the space of a couple of years, uh, enough to where we can start to feel blasé about it. I think that's <laughs> fabulous. Yeah. 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 yeah for, we I mean, for, we're for very what, lucky. For what it's worth, I mean, like, I felt like uh, Interstellar was the only movie that I've seen, like, really swing for the fences like it does. Like, I mean... You know, there's been movies that have, like, done, like, daring shit, but, I mean, like, th- like no one's even tried to make a movie like this in, like, forever. I mean... Because maybe I mean, 2001, you know? Yeah, probably, it, right? I so mean, many it, references between the two movies. Yeah. It's, I think Nolan was... Nolan knew where his roots came from. I'll, I'll give right. that. Right, yeah. I mean, because, yeah, I mean, even though I was... Even though I was citing Gravity, it's like, that's a... That, that is, like, a, a completely different type of movie, and it's like, 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 like Harry says, it's a... It's a it's more of a disaster movie. Just happens to be set in space, and it's like really kind of even barely science fiction, if if it even is at all. Um, you know, and uh, versus Interstellar, which is like going way outside. You know, taking us taking us out to discovering other planets and everything, but starting from this like realistic near future um, space, which um, you know, yeah, I mean, it's just basically never been really done in in film. Yeah, no, the film is is fa- is fascinating in its scope because it's like it's part Grapes of Wrath. Parts uh, contact, part two thousand one, uh, and and in terms of its thematic uh, makeup, it's it's all la jete. So um, yeah, it's it's fascinating. I want to say about the science too. Uh, it's interesting because uh, Kip Thorne wrote a book called The Science of Interstellar, which unfortunately I get a I didn't get a chance to read. But there's been a lot of criticism of the science in this movie, and Kip Thorne says if you read his book, he addresses virtually all of those complaints. Um, so I think, you know, if you're interested, you should definitely check that out. I think one thing that the story did very wisely is have a lot of the more dubious stuff be the work of a super advanced civilization. So who, who even knows what they're capable of, right? Rather than they just find a wormhole, it was constructed for them rather than just finding some fifth dimensional tesseract, it was constructed for them. So, you know, it's, it's not just coincidence that humans can survive in these environments. They were constructed with unimaginable advanced technologies specifically for that purpose. Yeah, I mean, actually, the, I, when I, the first time I, I saw the film, I just sort of assumed that's why the black hole was uh, so close to the wormholes, because the super civilization had harnessed the energy from the black hole in order to make a wormhole that size. I mean, wormholes do exist subatomically, right? I mean, they blip in and out of existence on the subatomic level, right? So, so in order to, to grab a wormhole and then to... Uh, expand it uh, to such a mammoth size would harness an incredible amount of energy. So I was just a sort of, maybe I was giving Nolan much more credit <laughs> than he deserved because I just sort of assumed 
that that's why the black hole was so close is because the super civilization had had harnessed you know the energy in other words they were using the black hole's power to too. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that it's, um, you know, that Kip Thorne uh, f- figured out probably lots of these things. As I said, I didn't read his books. So unfortunately, I can't comment on that specifically. But any of the I think any of the scientific credit has to go to him, not Christopher <laughs> Nolan, because you just read about their yeah. interactions and Christopher Nolan wanted there to be faster than light travel and all sorts of other yes. scientifically impossible things. And, right. you know, he had to be talked, talked back from the brink on on these right. things. Mm hmm. Yeah, the, the, I actually don't have very many criticisms of the science. My my science problems were nitpicky, like um, like them not needing a booster rocket to get off a of water planet and and that kind of thing, which which are nitpicky. So I'm I I love that kind of story enough that I'll if they can give me a decent explanation, like the black hole powering the wormhole, I am totally okay with that. Um, you know, I don't I don't have a problem. I I want to be won over. You know. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to fall yeah. into the story. All right, cool. So let's uh, let's talk about Act Three. We're gonna have to do this a little bit quickly, but uh, um, Space Madness, Matt Damon. Yeah, and also the I mean the the protracted um, epilogue kind of stuff. <laughs> but um, uh, I don't know, Carrie. Why don't you just quickly run through some some of the problems uh, you had with Act Three? My my biggest was Space Madness, Matt Damon, as I have taken to calling him. I think the character's name was Man. Um, which started out great. It, it was this amazing scene where they go to one of the other planets where one of their initial explorers landed and they wake him up from cryo sleep. And it's this very kind of poignant, um, you know, he, he talks about going to sleep, not knowing if he was ever going to wake up and how, how long has it been? And, oh my God, you know, the first time you've seen people not knowing if you were ever going to see people again. And, and I love that scene. Um, and then he kind of went a little bit crazy for no particular reason. And we got this kind of very long chase sequence with fighting. Um, that tonally was off. Um, you know, it didn't really fit. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I kind of didn't know what to make of it. And that was when I started feeling like the movie had gotten really long and we needed to go do something else now. Um, and, <laughs> and, um, but yeah, the wormhole falling into the black hole. I, I was with them on, on all that. My only complaint is I wish it had been a little shorter and punchier. Um, yeah, the story at that point. I, I even like the epilogue. I love the space station. I, I love that whole idea. I love that he finally got back together with his daughter, who was very old at that point. That was that all felt very science fictional um, to me. It's it's just once again some of the character stuff felt off. I'll hand it over to John or Rob now. <laughs> Go ahead, Rob. Oh, okay. Um, I thought the reason why Doctor Mann uh, went all haywire. Was because he needed, um, Dr. Mann did not go haywire until, uh, Cooper decided to go home. That's what triggered that. And, um, and, uh, Dr. Mann was insistent. I think he had his own sort of, own sort of agenda in terms of finishing the mission. And obviously his planet was a bust. So he needed Cooper's ship. In order to, uh, finish the mission. And he never really explained, or it wasn't clear to me anyway, how Dr. Mann was planning on accomplishing the mission. Um, uh, but to me, that's what triggered, uh, his, his so-called madness. Okay. So, so Rob, but my interpretation of that was that he had volunteered for this, um, potential suicide mission. Very, very right. courageously, 
but then Correct. in the course of being tested had discovered that he was actually a coward at heart and couldn't bring himself to die. And so everything he was doing subsequently was was an attempt to preserve his own life, no matter the cost. Um, right. And I actually, I actually kind of liked that in principle. And I thought, like thematically, his character worked, you know, as a contrast to some of the other characters no, in the no, movie. I, I, didn't, I certainly didn't have a problem. I just, I just, I agree with Carrie though. The, just the way it played on screen, I, I didn't, it didn't oh, work for I me. Oh, I see the way it's depicted. Yeah. Like, oh, I see. Well, yeah. I mean, again, I mean, you either what the way Nolan does things either works for you or it doesn't. <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean, that's why he's so divisive, right? So, um, uh, it worked for me though. It worked for John, me. John, what did you, what did you, John, you gotta be our tiebreaker you here. Have to take, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I agree with, with the way you laid it out, Dave, uh, basically, um, you know, like I, I Rob is alone. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I, I'm like Dr. Man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Honestly, I mean, uh, as far as the uh, problems with the ending goes, I, I had much more of a problem with the, with the sort of fifth dimensional stuff where he's like in, you know, behind the bookcase and all that. It's like, I mean, it's, it's cool. Like it looks cool and everything. And it's like, and I mean, if Carrie, you're saying that, you know, the science seems okay. Like, I don't know. I mean, it's just like, I felt like I, it wasn't sold well enough to me to me for, for me to be just like, Oh sure. Yeah. I buy that. I mean, cause it's like, it just felt like, like, Hollywood bullshit to me, honestly. I mean, even though, like, you know, you're saying, like, Kip Thorne has a book that explains all the science and everything, it's like, uh, if so, great. Um, I didn't feel like I had enough of a explanation from the movie to, for, for, for me to really buy it. Um, and so, like, while that stuff sort of worked pretty well emotionally, and I was glad that it explained away the metaphysical bullshit from earlier in the movie with the ghost and everything, um, yeah, I don't know. It just didn't really work for me 100%. Although, like, the conceptually, the, the ideas that it's playing with are pretty cool, you know? Conceptually and thematically, it all makes sense if you just see the film La Jate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I'm serious. I'm serious because that's what informs, that movie informs that scene. Okay. I mean, because it's, it's literally about, it's literally about the role of human emotion or, or the role of the human experience, really, uh, in, in a higher dimension where time is laid out before you, you know, where, as Neil deGrasse Tyson said, uh, when he was talking about interstellar, you know, uh, time is laid out before you where it's all happening at once. You know, when was I born? Well, I'm always being born. When, am, when did, when am I going to die? Well, you know, you're always dying. And so, um, that sort of, that sort of, uh, um, uh, situation, uh, is actually overwhelming. You, you would fry. You would totally fry. And, um, and so what saves Cooper from getting fried is the fact that he has this very powerful memory of his daughter rejecting him. And that's what ties him. That's what anchors him in that, in that time dimension. So I think that's, that's where I think La Jate really, um, sort of informs the movie, at least, you know, thematically. All right, cool. So I just want to say quickly about the uh, the epilogue stuff. I like Harry. I really liked the visual of the space um, colony thing. Uh, that I, I, as an old time science fiction fan, it really thrilled me to see stuff like that on screen. And I was also very uh, moved emotionally when Cooper is reunited with his daughter, who's now on her deathbed. But I thought the scenes played pretty strangely, where you know he's gone to all this trouble to get back to her, and then they have a fairly brief conversation, and then he leaves again. And uh, I wish that had been handled a little bit differently. Now, see, I was fine with that. I and mean, what else is he going to do? Sit there and like take up knitting, <laughs> you know? So he, <laughs> he has to go back and rescue Anne Hathaway's character, of course. Um, and I, I thought that was a fine place to end it. I just like 
um, I think either Dave or John mentioned earlier, I would have trimmed the whole movie by half an hour. Um, and I would have trimmed out some of the, the scenes of just people being overwrought. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm thinking now a lot more than I did when I saw the movie of Contact um, as an example of a movie that had a very strong emotional core, but balanced it, I think, quite a bit better. You know, that that's another movie that had a, a relationship between a father and a daughter and grief. Right. Um, and it also had Matthew McConaughey in it. And, um, <laughs> you know, it, it's right. such a big part of, of Ellie's character is, you know, dealing with her grief and, and what trajectory that grief put her on. And then coming to terms with that so that she can start to have human relationships with other people, which is something she had never been able to do. Um, you know, that's the emotional heart of that movie. And yet it seems so much more balanced um, to me than Interstellar. Okay, John, any, we need to wrap this up. Any final thoughts on the ending of uh, Interstellar? Um, yeah, I mean, not really about the ending. I'll just say overall, like, yeah, like Carrie was saying, I mean, if I, if I could have trimmed 30 minutes out of that, that would have been great. Like, um, and it's like, uh, I, I sort of dream about being uh, an, an editor in Hollywood, you know, an editor, <laughs> I'm an editor in publishing. If I, I sort of dream about being an editor in Hollywood who somehow has final cut um, and uh, just like trimming the shit out of, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, trimming the actual shit in movies out of them and, um, you know, making them better. Like it's just so many movies I could improve if only someone would give me the chance. Uh, but, you know, yeah, alas, uh, we have to deal with the deal with them as they come. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, uh, yeah, overall, I, I, I'm still sort of undecided about what I felt about the movie. You know, I mean, I, like I said, I loved lots, lots of parts of it, but, um, but overall, yeah, it just didn't really quite come together for me. So I couldn't have to see it again to, to really firm up, uh, you know, whether I think it's actually a decent movie or not. I'm, I'm sort of leaning towards no, though. Okay. Well, you know, the time has come. Big Hero Six versus Interstellar. So, uh, so John, you're gonna have to like make up your mind fast. Oh, oh, I got it. Uh, Big Hero Six all the way. No question whatsoever. Okay. Uh, do you have any commentary on that you want to provide? Oh, I mean, I just you know, I I just I I loved Big Hero Six like unreservedly, and uh, um, you know, given I have so many questions about how I feel about Interstellar, to me it's a no brainer. Um. You know, it makes me sad to say that as a science fiction fan. I mean, I love hard SF and, and Interstellar as was actually, you know, trying to do something big and cosmic and, and like nothing we've ever seen before. Whereas Big Hero 6 admittedly is, uh, you know, not doing anything too, um, original, but. Um, I just like, actually, Big Hero 6 was so good that I came out of the theater actually kind of depressed about it because I was like, I will never do anything in my career that will affect anybody remotely like that. What about, like, <laughs> what about what about this podcast, John? <laughs> well, of course, <laughs> uh, geeks kind of side. But, yeah, no, I mean, I just, like, because it's, like, anything I do, like, I mean, anything anybody does with a book, basically, is never going to do that just because of the experience of watching a movie and, you know, seeing it together with people and the fact that everyone uh, will have seen it as opposed to, you know, you read a book, even a very popular book, the chances are... Chances are most of your friends haven't read it, right? So yeah, it, it kind of uh, it kind of hit me on that ex existential level, um, you know. But uh, but yeah, but it but yeah, I mean, it's just it's it was so good. I, I just and I couldn't stop thinking about it. So for me, it's no brainer. All right, so that's one vote for Big Hero Six. Uh, Rob, where where do you come down on this one? Do I have to vote? <laughs> I mean, I love both movies so much for completely different reasons. I mean, it really is an apples and oranges comparison to me for me. But um, uh, loved Big Hero 6. I think Interstellar is more important. I think um, 
I think you know there was a genuine effort by the by the director to uh, to reach higher. You know, he was reaching higher for you know whether he failed or not is completely up to you know us. But um, I feel like uh, he was reaching for more, and I think it's a it's a more important film. So I'm going to pick Interstellar. Okay, so we've got a tie: one for Big Hero Six and one for Interstellar. So, Carrie, what do you think? I'm not going to help you out here much. Um, you know, to, to start with, I, 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 want, I appreciate both movies because I really appreciate having big budget movies where scientists are the main characters, um, scientists doing science. Uh, so I appreciate them both for that. Um, there were things I liked about both and there were things I didn't like about both. And I, I would rewatch them both, but for different moods. Um, you know, and for different reasons. I, I I know you don't want me to do a tie, but I kind of have to do a tie because um yeah, like like everyone has said, is is I, I like them both for different reasons, but I have nitpicks on both of them. Um neither one is ever gonna be a favorite movie of mine. Um so they're you know, if <laughs> they're they're the kind of movies that if I see them on TV I will probably leave them on while I'm doing something else. Um, All right, so that means I get to be the tie you have to be the tiebreaker. <laughs> so I get to be the tiebreaker. Oh, I love the sense of power. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I'm going to have to give the edge to Interstellar on this one. Ah, I, uh, <laughs> I, uh, John is alone. There was, John is alone. there was, uh, there was a lot more stuff I disliked in Interstellar. Um, but mm-hmm. there was more stuff I liked as well. And in the end, you know, um, in the end, I'm just going to have to go with how I felt at the, at the end of the two movies. And at the end of Interstellar, I just felt like I would, like I said, I had had this experience. And at the end of Big Hero Six, I thought like, ah, oh, it was fun, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that there's, you know, that the Big Hero Six is a much more consistent movie, and Interstellar is a much more flawed, more ambitious movie. And in the end, I'm going to have to go with the flawed, ambitious movie on this one. So uh, I guess Interstellar is the winner of our first. Movie, uh, movie <laughs> face-off episode here. I object. <laughs> uh, but you know, John, John, I thought gave a strong dissenting opinion there. So uh, we'll take it up an appeal. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope the Big Hero Six fans, uh, you know, feel like they were well represented as well. Uh, all right, cool. But so uh, yeah, we need to start wrapping this up. So uh, yes, we've been speaking with John Joseph Adams and Rob Bland and Carrie Vaughn. So, guys, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Hey, thanks for having me. It's fun as always. And that was our panel. So, big thanks again to John Joseph Adams, Rob Bland, and Carrie Vaughn for joining us as guests. And a very special thank you to listener Justin Tabor, crowdfunder number 94, who just made a very generous $50 contribution to the show. This episode was also made possible thanks to support from listeners such as Joanna Evans, George Tricot, Vlad Levin, Zoe Akim, Jeff Gass, Kenneth Reed, Raymond Chan, Stephen Tagarian, Bruno Onkir, Kurt Donaldson, and Jonathan Pottle. So thanks, guys. We really appreciate it. To learn more, visit us at geeksguideshow.com and click on crowdfunding. And if you live in the New York area, you should come out and meet Stephen Gould, our guest from episode 116. He'll be appearing at the KGB Bar on December 17th alongside Rajan Khanna, who's appeared on four of our shows, most recently in episode 109. To learn more, follow Geeks Guide NYC on Twitter. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening. 
and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.